Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. This week for Cardiology Month, our episode focuses on cardiac health and cardiovascular disease in women. Looking back at my medical training, there are more than a few instances where I wonder how we accepted the status quo without questioning more and pushing back. Heart disease was one of those areas that in hindsight was seen through a very gender biased lens. Although heart disease is and remains the number one killer of men and women, it was really thought of as a man's disease. We still saw and treated heart disease in women, but our understanding of the different presentations in women and the gender bias meant underdiagnosis and undertreatment. Gender differences in heart disease remained unexplored and unacknowledged as women were underrepresented in, or worse, excluded from clinical trials and research, and there were no guidelines to inform clinical decision-making. This was true of therapies that in some cases struggled to show effectiveness in women, not because they were not effective, but because there were too few women in the trials to demonstrate the clinical validity of those treatments. Things have changed and improved in the last few decades with gender-specific clinical recommendations for heart disease in women that have started to help, but as we continue to discover throughout medicine and science in general, we are only just scratching the surface. Women lag behind men in the presentation of heart disease by around 10 years. Hormonal differences are contributory, but that difference ceases as soon as menopause occurs, and while there are protective aspects to the hormone differences, they are not complete, and heart disease remains underdiagnosed and undertreated in women. Those hormone differences also play an important role in the lipid metabolism, making interpretation based on national gender standards opaque at best. In addition, the impact of pregnancy on cardiovascular systems is immense. There's additional circulatory strains that in most cases women adjust to dynamically, but as our society changes and maternal age increases, it's important to prepare and monitor. The field of cardiology and heart disease is evolving and outcomes are improving, slowly. Our understanding of gender differences and the need for more personalized approach continues to evolve, but as you'll hear, we still have some way to go. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Rupa Sangani. She is a professor of medicine at Rush College of Medicine and the section chief of general cardiology. Hi Rupa, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me here today. 
So we're focusing on Cardiology Month. It's February. Uh, it's all about cardiology. And in this particular instance, we're talking about cardiovascular disease in women. And that's got, I, I want to say, a pretty checkered past. We haven't done a good job. I think it's gotten better. Just bring us up to speed with where we came from and you know where we are now in terms of cardiovascular disease in women. Oh, well, you know, we know that from past history, women were treated essentially the same as men because we assumed that the disease process was, was the same. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in women in the United States, um, and one in three women have some form of cardiovascular disease. You know, if you look at cardiac mortality trends in the United States in the past, we did a great job um, in the late 1990s, um, both in men and women, but women clearly lagged behind that of men. And part of it was probably that we didn't appreciate the sex differences and that we weren't enrolling women in trials and actually mm -hmm. looking at how is the disease and the pathophysiology different. Um, for the first time ever in, uh, I think it was 2012, but early 2010s, um, the mortality rate of women actually went below that of men. And that's really the first time we saw a huge difference. Unfortunately, mortality trends are going back up for both genders again. So we still have a lot to learn, but I think a, a lot has been done in the last few years, in particular in terms of awareness, both professionals, medical professionals being more aware that this disease is prevalent um, in women, patients being more aware, and on from a research standpoint, paying much more attention now to having women enrolled and looking at how the different disease is different. Yeah, so you bring up a, a couple of interesting areas and, you know, obviously it's improved, but historically the lack of uh, inclusion of women in trial data essentially gave, I, I want to say, a false signal in terms of the effectiveness, of, particularly around statins as one of the primary treatments. And, you know, there's been some resistance. We're starting to improve that, but it's it's actually more or deeper than that in terms of what we understand at this point. You know, from a, a male standpoint, uh, presentation, I don't want to say, I, you know, as a physician, I look at this and say, well, they, you know, they come in with crushing central chest pain radiating, but that's not the case always, but it is, I think, more consistent with men. Women tend to present slightly differently. Tell us a little bit about that. So first of all, we know that women are somewhat protected by hormones, correct? So women usually who develop heart disease, it lags about 10 years behind that of men. And I would say for most younger women, we're somewhat protected until perimenopause. So, you know, the outliers there are the women who have um, autoimmune diseases. So lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, we're definitely seeing younger patients, um, but it affects women in every age group. So first of all, misconceptions that younger women who come in with chest pain, oh, it's not coronary disease. Mm -hmm. Well, it absolutely can be. Um, but, you know, we know that over the age of 50s, 55, our risk is the same, if not greater than that of men. And so it needs to be taken seriously. How they present, though, you know, the textbook definition of chest pain does occur in women. We see women with classic substernal chest pain that radiates to their neck or arm and, and is worse with exertion and relieved by rest. But more often, it is vague symptoms. It can be shortness of breath. It can be fatigue. Um, the chest pain story may be um, more of a, a sharp chest pain. 
What I tell my patients is, does something feel different? And are you not able to do what you normally do? I think functional ability and keeping up with what they are normally able to do is, is a really big factor, but it's also just being aware of who is at risk. So I, I think great advice as people think about this. And, you know, obviously we all want to be cognizant as possible to um, attend a, a, our physician when we feel like things are, uh, you know, off, as you describe. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the etiology of the disease and what we're starting to learn now about the impact of pregnancy in particular for women as we understand it today. Yeah. So pregnancy, um, I like to think of as a nine month long stress test, right? Your, your blood volume, your plasma volume almost doubles. Um, it is a huge volume load on the heart and a huge stress. And so it often can unmask underlying coronary disease, underlying heart problems, I should say, not just coronary disease. Um, we know that in particular, any hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, whether it be gestational hypertension, frank preeclampsia or eclampsia, if you have any type of hypertension pregnant uh, problem during your pregnancy, you are at higher risk of developing hypertension often within 10 years of delivery, and you're just at higher cardiovascular risk. Similarly, we know that women with gestational diabetes are at higher risk of developing diabetes at a younger age and also higher cardiovascular risk. I, I actually take a full pregnancy um, history on all of my female patients wanting to know about prior issues a small incremental increases in risk, though, knowing if they've had um, premature births, stillbirths, all of that, you know, age and uh, menarche, menopause, all of that is very important. And they play tiny incremental risks, but the volume load and the vascular and endothelial changes of pregnancy really kind of show us what, what's happening in their vascular system. And so it is a risk factor. So you you obviously include that as part of your history taking from a, a, a patient perspective. How should they think about this? I mean, what are the sort of um, approaches that a woman should think about in terms of helping protect herself um, as she enters into pregnancy, as she thinks about her cardiovascular health in general? I think a woman who has um, any, especially a hypertensive disorder or diabetes during pregnancy, just needs to know that they're at risk for this and get good follow-up. And then similarly for the healthcare professionals to know that in particular, we need to be screening for hypertension, high cholesterol, and diabetes in this population at a younger age. Now, of course, these are the women that have just had a baby. And those first 10 years, they're crazy busy and aren't coming in as regularly because they're in their... 20s, 30s, or early 40s these days, and not really thinking about themselves and not thinking that they're at risk. And so for all of us, it's a call to action to, to recognize that this is a real risk factor. So, um, you know, more focus on it, obviously a change in just the, the, the general age of uh, having babies that, you know, has, I, I think, imposed an additional risk. But let's talk about treatments and what are the options available? Assuming that you've got some of these risk factors, what should we be doing about it and what should women think? And one of the things that I think about is obviously during pregnancy, if you have any of those pre-existing risk factors going in, 
are we still able, able to medicate? How are you approaching that? Yeah, great question. So um, especially as we see older women getting pregnant, and I do a lot of cardioobstetrics, um, if you've had any pre-existing condition or known cardiac problem, the most important thing is to be seen before you get pregnant. Um, we will assess risk, have a frank discussion with the patient, change medications over to pregnancy, safe medications, especially if they're on antihypertensives. And then from there, we can counsel the patient. Um, you know, some patients I see once during their pregnancy, um, usually around like 30 weeks is, is probably the highest risk time because that's the peak volume load of pregnancy. Other patients I may see once a trimester and my, my seriously ill patients I may see up to every two weeks, especially as they get towards the end. But that evaluation up front is critically important. I think we also really need to pay more attention to the postpartum period. Um, they call it now the fourth trimester and uh, the first few weeks after pregnancy, in particular, the first two weeks are a huge change in the hemodynamics and a very vulnerable period for patients. So my, my postpartum patients who have hypertension or cardiomyopathy, I will actually see them weekly for the first two to three weeks because there's dramatic changes in stroke volume, SVR, heart rate, et cetera, in those first few weeks. Are you applying any monitoring through all of that? Are you sending patients home with capabilities? Have we sort of expanded the the, uh, the technology that can help support this? Because, you know, obviously you're, you're sitting at home with the child. It could be hard to get in and, and actually come and see a physician. Yeah. So obviously any imaging I want to do would ideally be done before the patient gets pregnant. So really complicated patients with aortic stuff, all of that. I want to get their CTs and MRs done beforehand. During the pregnancy, it is mostly echo, non-contrast imaging and lab work. Um, we'll check BNPs or troponins if needed. Um, but postpartum, and this is where um, the newest technology, telehealth, has been super helpful here. I see most of my postpartum patients virtually. It keeps them at home. They are usually a pretty compliant population. And if I just say, I just need you to get me a blood pressure machine and be able to give me these numbers, they'll do that. And it's, it's a win-win for everyone because I can keep them at home nice and safe and sound. So we've got great additions, albeit, you know, relatively simple, but we can add to that. Um, we can get folks home. And, you know, I, I think the idea of hauling young baby, although, I, well, I don't know. It's, it's been so long since I've had young babies. I, I, maybe I've got a, a, a rose-tinted spectacles, but they seem to sleep an awful lot at that time. Maybe it was easier. But anyway, it's, it's tough to get in. We've got improvements in that. Now, moving forward, let's talk about women's health and you know some of the presentation issues. As they get older, you talk about that 10-year improvement that that drops off. What are, what are the approaches to sort of minimize risk as much as possible and what should people be thinking about? Yeah, obviously, if you have a family history, if you have risk. So first of all, it's, it's seeing your doctor and doing our standard risk assessment tools. So athros, you know, ASCVD risk scores, assessing cholesterol, blood pressure. But there are the other risk factors in women that are not included in our traditional risk factor schemes, which include family history. Um, autoimmune disorders like lupus and RA, and then again, the pregnancy history. So those are probably the three big things I add on to traditional ASCVD risk scores. 
patients where I am concerned. They have a strong family history and they're the outliers um, and they're really here because they want to be aggressive. Those are patients where I might do a calcium score, a screening calcium score earlier on, because that may make the difference between me starting them in a statin or not. If their ASCVD score is still less than seven and a half percent, they don't meet criteria for a statin, at least knowing as there's some type of subclinical atherosclerosis will change how I medically manage them. I'll also sometimes do advanced lipid testing, looking for LP little a, um, ApoB compounds, just to see, again, is there anything else outside of our four standard lipid panel um, that puts this patient at higher risk? And then if you have the patient who you know is at risk, um, having that lower threshold to do proper testing once they actually come in with symptoms, even if they sound atypical. So uh, when you talk about statins, so, you know, one of the primary um, uh, treatment modalities as well as, you know, blood pressure um, uh, medication, my, my understanding is that there's more resistance in women to taking statins. There's been uh, a challenge in sort of acceptance. There's, uh, you know, an association with muscle pain. Are you finding that? Is that a problem specifically in women? Um, you know, how do you sort of approach that? I actually haven't found that to be a problem. I find most of my patients are very receptive to it. Um, you know, the data is that it's just as efficacious. Um, I think the bigger problem is that women are undertreated. People don't use aspirin and statins and treatment as aggressively in women as they do in men. We know that they are less treated, less intensively treated, and that they have, um, they're less optimally referred for cath and for angiography and PCI. So what that means for women is that they've got to be even more alert than the average bear in terms of thinking about their own health. This is about personal health management, um, you know, understanding, hey, I need to go and press this issue because it's not, I, I don't want to say taken seriously, but it's it, when it presents, it's not typically seen in the same uh, perspective as a man uh, when they uh, present with those symptoms. As, as you see people with uh, acute conditions, what are the some of the things that people should be thinking about and looking for, and what do you find? So this is a very interesting um, and new area, interesting area, new area that we're really looking at. So women who do come in with chest pain, we have seen from um, the women's ischemia syndrome trial, the WISE trial, that a large proportion of these women, even when when referred for angiography, did not have obstructive coronary disease, and they were told. We don't know where your chest pain is coming from, but it's not your heart arteries. Now, remember that when we do an angiogram, we are injecting dye into the lumen, into the middle of the vessel. So all we're seeing is the very middle. We're not seeing the wall of the artery. And we know from pathophysiology, what's called the Glagol phenomena, that when atherosclerosis starts, it starts in the wall of the artery. It tends to progress outward. And then eventually it starts to encroach into the middle. And in men, we've seen that that usually presents as a focal stenosis and those patients get stented and we fix them and they go back to being fine. With women, we're finding the plaque deposits differently. It's much more diffuse. So had you done an angiogram on this patient a couple of years ago, you might have seen, you know, nice open arteries, but they're a larger caliber. And now these arteries still not obstructive, 
may actually be smaller caliber and you didn't even realize it because you're just looking at what I call a luminogram on a cath. And so understanding that the physiology is different, um, CTA, which can be very helpful to look at the wall of the artery, um, pushing your cath interventionalists when they're doing the case, did you do an IVUS? Did you actually look for intravascular ultrasound and at the wall? And if they really have symptoms of ischemia, whether that be chest pain, EKG changes, or a positive stress test. If you have no obstructive coronary disease, we have now termed that um, a condition called INOCA, which stands for ischemia with non-obstructive coronary arteries. And there is a whole syndrome of this. It is it's found in both genders, but predominantly in women. And these are patients that really do need to be looked at more closely. They have probably what we call microvascular dysfunction. We know that two thirds of coronary circulation is actually under the surface. And all we address in our angiograms is the three big epicardial arteries. And so these are still patients that need an aspirin and a statin, and they might need ACE inhibitors for endothelial dysfunction. There's a lot of medical management that can be done, but we need to appreciate that even though the coronary arteries on a cath are negative, they still have ischemia and disease. So I, I got to say, you know, very troubling to hear that in some respects, you know, because we consider that um, imaging to be diagnostic and yet it presents as it, what I would call normal and, you know, potential discharge. Obviously, we're, we've got more awareness, but I'm imagining not as widespread. It sounds like, and, and I'm going to try and pick what you said, but if the patient shows the clinical symptoms, even if the imaging doesn't support it, then we're probably saying that they have the disease. Is that a fair assessment? And is that how people should think about this? Yes, I mean, I think we need to dig deeper is the key to make sure that it is, um, you know, it, I just don't want things to be blown off as this is non-cardiac chest pain, or unfortunately, some patients are being told it's in your head. So we know that there's clearly a subset of women who have real angina. Um, and, you know, there's different terms. We've seen everything from actual MIs happening with no obstructive coronary disease, ischemia, objective evidence, so EKG changes or a positive stress test with no obstructive coronary disease, or angina with no obstructive coronary disease. And these are women that definitely need to probably be referred to a higher level center with expertise in this. So I, I think it's raising awareness, um, really sort of understanding a different presentation, different sort of instance of this, albeit could, could also occur in men, but I think a, a rarer incidence. From a, a, a women's perspective, I think they have to be, um, you know, they're already the, the chief health officer of most families, but quite often they fail to take account of their own health as part of that role, I believe. I, I, and, and not because they don't want to, but I think they're focused on everybody else. And I think the lasting lesson that I have here is, um, you, you know, to apply some of that focus that you have on the rest of the family to yourself, particularly around cardiac health. Rupert, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Nick. I very much appreciate the opportunity. As you've heard, some amazing progress and incredible insights into the gender differences in cardiovascular disease. Even in the case of a well-established diagnostic test, such as coronary artery angiograms, 
we find that the indicators in women can obscure cardiovascular disease presentation, such as inoka, essentially coronary artery disease without plaques visible. The message is clear. Disease diagnosis and treatment should be guided by clinical impressions supplemented with testing, and in cases of doubt, demand referral to expert centers with more experience. Your better pill to swallow? is to take a more active and personal interest in your own personal cardiac health. This is true for men, but especially true for women, as our understanding of gender differences increases, but remains unevenly distributed and applied. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare, as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.